My name is Dee Casper. I work with Unseen Media Group. We are a media ministry that's passionate about evangelism. So our burden is to equip young people to reach their peers through media and evangelism. And we actually have a training program to do that. Uh, it's called IDEA, the Institute for Digital Evangelism Arts, finding ways to use creative media to reach the next generation. It's basically film school and a school of evangelism put together. So it's for post high school, 18 to 25 age range-ish. And uh, yeah, that's our burden is to not just make creative content that's principled and Christ-centered to reach people through social media, but also to equip young people to reach their peers. So that's a burden that we have and uh, in personal ministry and in evangelism. So what I'd like to do is begin with a word of prayer, and then we'll start our seminar, Snapchats, Selfies, and Salvation. Let's pray. God in heaven, I thank you for this privilege to have access to your word, to have access to a medium that can reach billions of people who do not know Jesus and whom we do not know personally but can still influence. So I just pray that you would bless us today with discernment, with wisdom, and I just pray that your will would reign supreme in what transpires today. And we ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen. So I first want to kind of give a biblical parallel to the importance of this topic and this venue. So in Acts chapter 19, Paul is a converted man now, is preaching the gospel all over the world, and he gets to a place called Ephesus. How many people have heard of Ephesus or read the book of Ephesians? It's amazing. You should read it if you haven't. So in the book of Ephesians, just kidding, in the book of Acts chapter 19, when Paul is preaching at Ephesus, he's reasoning with the Jews. They get to a point that they're not really wanting to listen to him anymore. He preached there for like three months or something, and then he decides he's going to rent the school of Tyrannus. And the school of Tyrannus, I'll explain here in a moment, but basically... He's going to find a place where the people are hanging out, and he's going to educate these people on the gospel. So this is like an artist's depiction of the school of Tyrannus. I doubt they had chalkboards but, and ceiling fans, but it's the basic idea, right? People are coming. They're hanging out. Now, what was the school of Tyrannus? Um, let me just read this first, and I'll get into that. So when Paul's preaching the gospel in the school of Tyrannus, there's this interesting thing the text says in verse 10 says, and this continued his preaching in that school for two years, so that all who dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. Now, I find this interesting because all of the Roman province of Asia hears the gospel, and Paul never leaves this school. So how does that happen? Well, people came, they heard Paul, they appreciated what he said, they went home and they shared with the people they knew. Other people came, they heard what Paul had to say, they went home and shared with the people that they knew. In short, they hit like and share on their profiles, right? They liked what he had to say. It was something relevant to them, and they dispersed it. Paul was getting the gospel to go viral in his day. Now, the school of Tyrannus was basically this facility in Ephesus. It was too hot to work in the middle of the day. And so from the hours of like 11 to 5 or something like that, this place was just open. They would have school for people in higher classes in society in the mornings. They would receive training or whatever. But after that, it was just an open facility, and people were just hanging out here to hear new ideas and to hear of just something new, philosophy, to kind of go back and forth. So this is where they would go to kill time when it was too hot to do anything else and to hear new ideas. Now, social media is basically the new school of Tyrannus. It's a place where people kill time and where they hang out you know, after, and they, after work in school, where they kill time and look into new ideas. But let's just be honest. Um, we do it while we're in school at work too, don't we? Just don't tell my boss and don't tell my teacher. So it's a very 
unique parallel, I think, to Acts 19, to what actually happens with social media, what it can do for the gospel. People like what you have to say, they want to share it with others. The vehicle is there. That's the point. But is it really that effective? Here's how we know. Some staggering statistics. The world population, according to Mr. Google, is 7.6 billion people. 3.8 billion are on the internet. That's half, I think. Michelle, you're better at math than I am. That's half, right? Okay. 2.8 billion are active on social media. 1 billion people are active on Facebook, and 100 million people use Instagram every month. 91% of retail brands use two or more social media accounts. Now, not a lot of them are making tons of money on it, but they get name recognition with pays off later. And when they like brands, they follow these brands on social media. Internet users have an average of 5.54 social media channels. How many people have five social media channels? Really? Does, does anyone actually use Google Plus? It's okay if you do, don't feel bad. I just, I've never used it. I wondered if anyone actually did. Um, but anyway, the average is 5.54 social media channels, 75% of Facebook users, and 50% of Instagram users visit these sites daily, okay? Social media use increased by 482 million since January of 2016. One million new active mobile social users are added every day. That's 12 a second. And Facebook Messenger and WhatsApp handle 60 billion messages a day. That's a lot of communication. On any given day, Snapchat reaches 41% of 18 to 34-year-olds in the U.S. If anyone, anybody saw the annual council reports from two weeks ago about our youth and retention, we ain't coming close to that, right? We're really wrestling to keep this demographic. 50% of 18 to 24-year-olds go on Facebook when they wake up. How many of them are picking up one of these when they wake up, right? But they are going to Facebook. They are going to social media. The average daily time used on social media in 2016 was 118 minutes. And I'm not going to go crazy biblical on you right now, but that's almost a tithe of their day. I'm just saying. This is the internet use based upon region. 923 million in East Asia. I think this is the percentage that are actually... The blue is the users. I don't really understand that white thing, so I'm going to ignore that. I just found it yesterday. But this was cool. 923 million internet users in East Asia. 585 million in South Asia. 362 million in Africa. But we're all the way down here. 320 million. Which is pretty close to our population, I think. All that being said, a whole lot of people are on the internet. How many people have profiles? Facebook, 1.9 billion. YouTube, 1 billion. Instagram, 600 million. Twitter, 317 million, and Snapchat, 300 million. This is a lot of folks, a whole lot of folks, and it's far easier to reach them this way than it would be to get on a boat, to get on a plane, to get on a train, drive your car, walk, ride your bike, or whatever other means of transportation you have, right? These people are at our access through something that's relatively easy. The Apostle Paul's mouth would be watering right now if he could reach this many people this easily. Now, I use the word easily in, in somewhat of a fashion. Like, I, it ain't easy to get people to accept the gospel by just like, hey, here's John 3.16, and then like the next day, the whole world's converted, right? It doesn't work like that. But the fact that you can access people this easily is pretty phenomenal. And we'll get in kind of the, to the hows in the second portion of this session. Okay, so we have two sessions. This is the first one. In the second session, we'll kind of do more of the hows. I just want to kind of deal with the what's, some of the moral background, and so forth. So, 
Some of you people may be asking the question this bear is asking, yeah, but isn't there lots of bad stuff on social media? And the answer is yes, there are bad things there. For instance, there's terrorist propaganda, right? ISIS gained a lot of followers on Twitter, and I don't just mean in, in the Twitter sense, like they gained a lot of people ideologically through social media. There's violence to be found on social media. Cyberbullying, this is no joke, we'll close with this. This is the safest picture I could use. Pornography, right? Um, Facebook Live is showing all kinds of seedy things. Um, this particular image here is a few months ago, some young people in Chicago kidnapped someone who was mentally disabled and tortured this person live on social media and embarrassed them. And uh, as if people won't find you because it's coming through your, we don't think of such things, I guess. Anyway, spiritualism, right? Just a bunch of kooky stuff. And I don't just mean Beyonce videos, other stuff too. Um, now, addiction and how social media shapes the brain. I have three videos on this that I find to be enjoyable and humorous. I hope you'll find the same, but they make a good point. Uh, the first one is an AT&T commercial I found on the Facebook the other day. Anyone ever felt that inside? Like, you know that you shouldn't answer your phone, but at the same time, like, there's this prodding inside of you that you have to look at it. Uh, it's probably because our brains are being rewired, rewired. How many people ever watch any ASAP science videos? Anyone ever watch other stuff on YouTube? It's okay if you have. Good. I don't feel alone. So here's one on social media. Five ways that social media is changing your brain right now. With social media sites being used by one-third of the entire world, they've clearly had a major influence on society. But what about our bodies? Here are five crazy ways that social media and the internet are affecting your brain right now. Can't log off? Surprisingly, 5-10% to of internet users are actually unable to control how much time they spend online. Though it's a psychological addiction as opposed to a substance addiction, brain scans of these people actually show a similar impairment of regions that those with drug dependence have. Specifically, there's a clear degradation of white matter in the regions that control emotional processing, attention, and decision making. Because social media provides immediate rewards with very little effort required, your brain begins to rewire itself, making you desire these stimulations. And you begin to crave more of this neurological excitement after each interaction. Sounds a little like a drug, right? We also see a shift when looking at multitasking. You might think that those who use social media or constantly switch between work and websites are better at multitasking, but studies have found that when comparing heavy media users to others, they perform much worse during task switching tests. Increased multitasking online reduces your brain's ability to filter out interferences and can even make it harder for your brain to commit information to memory. Like when your phone buzzes in the middle of productive work. Or wait, did it even buzz? Phantom vibration syndrome is a relatively new psychological phenomenon where you think you felt your phone go off, but it didn't. In one study, 89% of test subjects said they experienced this at least once every two weeks. It would seem that our brains now perceive an itch as an actual vibration from our phone. As crazy as it seems, technology has begun to rewire our nervous system, and our brains are being triggered in a way they never have before in history. Social media also triggers a release of dopamine the feel-good chemical. Using MRI scans, scientists found that the reward centers in people's brains are much more active when they're talking about their own views as opposed to listening to others. Not so surprising, we all love talking about ourselves, right? But it turns out that while 30 to 40% of face-to-face -face conversations involve communicating our own experiences, around 80% of social media communication is self-involved. 
The same part of your brain related to orgasms, motivation, and love are stimulated by your social media use, and even more so when you know you have an audience. Our body is physiologically rewarding us for talking about ourselves online. But it's... Alright, that last line should trouble you. Our bodies are physiologically rewarding ourselves for talking about ourselves online. This is one of the reasons why we can't put the phone down and why we keep looking to see if there's one of those red circles with a number in it, right? Uh, the last one is a guy who's pretty famous on Facebook and YouTube for using satire to make like a genuine point. His name's J.P. Sears. He's super kooky into this new age stuff, but he has some really, really good points, and particularly on this one, on, on addiction to devices. And once we get into this, I'll, I'll cover some more stuff, but I want to do this last one. Studies show that people check their phones 150 times per day. This is horrible, and I think we can do better. I envision a world where people have enough anxious energy that they're driven to check their phones at least 600 times per day. My mission in this life is to make sure that every man, woman, and child has their life enriched by always having a device in their hand. <laughs> always being on my phone gives me the thrill of being manically busy while I'm actually wasting my time. You need to be hypervigilant about what's going on in your feed. If there's something happening that you don't know about, then other people know something useless that you don't know. And that'll make you a less significant person. If I'm not frantically consuming content on my phone, then I'm missing out. And I don't know what that something is that I'm missing out on, but I refuse to miss out on it. You need to have a well-educated understanding of how bad things will get if you're not on your phone. One time I went an hour without looking at my phone. What happened? My family disowned me. I'll never see them again. My dog died. I went bankrupt. And my food supply was cut off. I get to feel a dopamine rush that gratifies me for 37 seconds each time I check my phone. And then I feel anxious again. And then I check my phone again. Notice that the thoughts and feelings that you don't want to experience are in here. So you'll want to position your phone here. And when you do, notice that your eyes are pointed at your phone. And that keeps your attention out here, which means you're not paying attention to what's going on in here, which is ideal. And I'm sorry to get graphic, but look what would happen if you don't have your phone in front of you. Your attention would start to notice you. And if that happens, it's nobody's fault but your own. Remember, when you're mindlessly scrolling, you're not looking for something you care about. Looking is what you care about. When a text comes in, understand that if you don't check it right away, you become irrelevant to the person who sent it. You simply won't matter to them anymore. At this point, your anxiety levels should be at least a 9 out of 10. This will inspire you to appropriately disrupt what you're doing and check your text. And avoid getting lost in the sea of irrelevance. Okay, go ahead. When you're encountering something wonderful, it can't bring you joy unless you hold your phone between you and it to transfer it to your social media. Once it's on your social media, you can see other people seeing you see something wonderful, and that'll bring you real joy. You know you're on the right track when other people take out their phone and then you reflexively take out yours, even though you have no idea what you want to look at, and it doesn't matter. Just start looking. How can people live without being on their devices constantly? According to history, if you look at times where people existed without mobile devices, you'll see that they're all dead now. 
which proves you can't live without being on your device constantly. Scientific studies show that if I'm not posting useless thoughts that involve no thoughtfulness throughout the day as a way of begging people to notice me, people will forget about me and I'll cease to exist. I don't want to be a statistic. For safety reasons, you'll always want to have a backup battery charger with you. Would astronauts go to outer space without backup oxygen? No, they would not, because they would die. So what would happen to you if your phone ran out of power? Something worse. You'd experience yourself. If I had kids, I'd give them a phone as soon as they could hold it. You do have kids. There's two of them. Really? I've never noticed them. There's a whole world inside your phone. Don't let it pass you by. So even though he's using satire, he's kind of grilling us in ways that, like, how many people are thinking, like, how does he know that I do that? He's like, how does he know that I'm actually that way? So some important thoughts on this particular topic of addiction. One, all addictive behavior is us attempting to numb our own pain. All of it. You're running to escape things, as he was mentioning in the video. The things that you're wrestling with in here and in here, we just got to get away from. And so we run to something to get our minds off of those things. So that's what all addictive behavior comes from in a root level. So the question you need to ask then is, what type of thoughts am I trying to be avoiding? Or what am I trying to avoid? And have I brought that brokenness to Jesus? Or am I just looking to the attention of others to fill that void? Does that make sense? Am I looking for acceptance? Am I looking for some type of attention from others to fill that loneliness, that vacancy that I'm contending with? Some other thoughts is the cause that I'm radically committed to, right? It could be that we're really into politics, we're really into environmentalism, we're really into, you know, church politics and those type of arguments. Are these things my sense of trying to find worth in doing something other than healing my own brokenness, right? Sometimes we run to these causes to find that sense of being worth something and finding value because we're not finding it in just being who we are, right? We've got some, some issues we're dealing with on the inside. Does running down so-and-so, right, current presidents, past presidents, church officials, other people, pop stars, sports officials, whoever, does running so-and-so down numb the pain and the insecurity that I feel? Do I feel better about myself when I say nasty things about so-and-so or so-and-so? These are some just introspective questions that it's really helpful to ask, particularly when you have that impulse to just run to social media. Well, why am I running here? What am I looking to achieve? Uh, in that very context, only he who has no power needs to control, right? People who are genuine leaders don't need to be controlling because they can take control at any given moment, right? It's the people who don't have control that have to manipulate other people. And some other helpful steps here. One, you choose when you look and respond to your notifications. That doesn't, so when you hear that sound, that doesn't actually mean that you have to stop everything that you're doing and check every individual message. You could actually just check things in batches, and it kind of changes the way that your brain operates, right? You're no longer reactive, you're proactive. Changes the way that you work through things. Ask yourself a question, and I ask myself this sometimes, that I think Doug mentioned this two nights ago, Doug Batchelor mentioned this, that like you walk into a room, and then you, you forget why you came into the room, and so you just kind of go back to the other room, and hope that you'll remember why you went to this. Like, when you find yourself on social media and you don't know why, then leave. Like, why am I here? I don't know why. I have many occasions where I'm looking for one thing. Like, hey, there's a video I need for this. This happened to me yesterday. I need to find this particular video for my presentation. And like an hour later, I didn't even remember why I was on YouTube. Like, 
I don't know how I got here. I don't know how much time has passed. And then eventually I remember what I needed. But time gets wasted this way, right? Just ask yourself a logical question. Why am I going to social media? It doesn't mean you don't use it, but just kind of control how you use it. I kind of tell people to treat it like the post office, right? When you've got enough mail, you drive to the post office, you drop it in the box, and you get what your mail is, and you go home, right, if you have a P.O. box. You don't have to have this constant access. It's nice, I guess, for the flexibility of, of having a device, but you don't have to be there all the time, right? Go there for a span and then leave for quite a while, right? Choose your trips. Someone says it this way, right? They tell you not to shop when you're hungry because you end up buying a whole lot more stuff than you need. You spend more time than you need to. Go there when you need something, right? Or schedule times when you go there, but don't just live and swim in that pool all day. Don't shop when you're hungry. Some other helpful steps. Am I looking for affirmation and attention? Ask yourself the honest question. Am I looking to receive? Am I looking to give? Uh, and take downtime, right? One of the statistics was that, I forget what the percentage was, but such and such a percentage of young people, the first thing they look at in the morning is their social media feeds. Take time in the morning and in the evening to stay away from that stuff, right? You don't actually have to be on there. And it's just helpful because it allows your brain to start the right way. Focus on the right things. I have a great idea. Talk to Jesus first thing in the morning, right? That's one idea of many. But when you go to bed, let your mind settle down, right? These things affect the way that your brain operates. And one of the ways that they compensated was they now have like night mode or whatever on your iPhone because it messes up your ability to be able to sleep. So well, we'll fix that. We'll put on a filter on your phone so you can still look at this stuff the very last minute before you go to bed. Take time away from your device before you go to bed just to allow your brain to unwind, right? To process, to do self-reflection. A lot of times when we run to social media, we're running there because we have free time. We're bored. What if you took that free time to just like stop, to just think, to just reflect, to process the things you've had to go through that day? That's what people used to do. The problem is now we're so reactionary, we never really get in front of the eight ball when it comes to life that's happening around us. So this is a good thing to do, not just when you wake up and when you go to bed, but just take some time where you're just away from it and don't need it. Be honest with yourself. If you realize that this thing is using you more than you're using it, back away, right? You can delete the app, you can do other things, and it's just helpful to just back away for a while. How many people have ever taken like a fast from social media and realized that your productivity went up while you were away compared to what you had when you were on there all the time, right? The difficulty is when you take time away and you don't deal with the root issues, what generally happens is you go right back in just as deep as you were before, and you never really get ahead, right? So I recommend that when you take that time off, ask the honest questions. Bring this before God and say, God, am I spending too much time here? Now notice, I started this seminar by saying that there's a lot of benefits that can be found by being able to reach people. So I'm not saying avoid social media like the plague, but I'm also telling you don't assume that you can just do whatever you want and it's not going to affect you right? Science tells us otherwise, and our experiences tell us otherwise. Now, the definition of a selfie, according to the dictionary, I guess, some urban dictionary, is a picture taken of a person by that person. Well, I've developed a word, and don't take this from me. I'm going to patent this someday. I call it selfie-ishness, and it's basically that this process of taking pictures of ourselves, of posting always about ourselves, puts us in a position that we're always looking to advance ourselves in the eyes of the people around us, right? It gives us this very inward gaze instead of recognizing that we're servants of the people around us, right? It actually rewires the way that your brain operates. 
and the thing is, like, we come out of the womb selfish, right? Any parents can vouch for that. But it gets worse when we have things like this that feed it. So I just find that appropriate balance. That's all I'm saying. I'm not saying it's sin. You got to stay away from it like the plague. That's not actually the point. Just tread cautiously. I think there's a good lesson we can learn from the life of Lot. That was a lot of L's. Anyway, a lesson that we can learn from the life of Lot. Lot chose the plain of Sodom as where he wanted to live whenever Abraham said, you choose. If you go right, I'll go left. If you go left, I'll go right. So he chooses Vegas, right? They got Whole Foods. They got libraries. They got an Apple store. They got everything I could ever want. I'm going there. But the problem is the text says that the men of Sodom were exceedingly wicked and sinful against the Lord. I have a very simple question for you today. Does this sound like a place that you want to be raising your children? They're not filming Sesame Street here, right? This is not the place that you want to be living. But this is what it says about Sodom. Now, initially, Lot was living in the plain outside of Sodom. Somehow he finds himself inside of Sodom. And in, I think it's Genesis chapter 14, Sodom is sacked by the people who are leading over them because they rebelled. They get taken captive. Abraham gets word of this, gets them back. They go back home. And for Lot, this was the warning shot, right? If you ever get in those backwoods areas and you hear somebody fire off a weapon, what they're telling you is, I'm reloading, leave my property, right? That's the warning shot. Lot got that. He had no idea that Abraham was coming to save him. And for all intents and purposes, he assumes that he's a dead duck, right? I'm in a whole lot of trouble. I shouldn't have been here. But this happens with us sometimes in response to conviction that when things calm down, we find ourselves right where we were before, right? That's why I mentioned think introspectively before going back in. So in Genesis 18 and 19, he finds himself inside of this actual city. And when he's in the city, angels are sent there to pull him out because the whole place is going down. And he's arguing with them and telling them, no, 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 I can't make it. I'm not going to live if you tell me to go where I'm going to go. It's just not going to work. God sends angels from heaven and he argues with them saying that I'm going to die if I do what you tell me. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense, but sin makes us kind of stupid. And so in Lot's situation... He finally realizes the seriousness of the matter, and he runs, and he goes and tells his sons-in-law, he says, you guys have to get out of here. This place is so bad, like so many awful, vile things are happening here, and you've got to get out of here right now. But here's the problem. When he goes and tells his sons-in-law, the text literally says that to his sons-in-law, he seemed to be joking. And here's why. You know, you didn't seem to be this worried a week ago. And if this place really is all that bad, why do you live here? And why are you raising your children here? You understand? Lot is referred to in First or Second Peter as a man of righteousness. The problem is he was very comfortable around foolishness. And that, that internal fence-sitting, that dual citizenship, doesn't really help us, right? Lot's concession and his comfort killed his witnessing potential. We is, and the thing is, Lot didn't have this National Sunday Law thing that he's just trying to avoid thinking about, and then we'll just get ready when we start to see the laws get enacted. He didn't have that in his situation. But we do, and we think, well, when things get ugly, then I'll get my act together, then I'll leave, and then I'll tell people, and they'll come with me. Well, according to this situation, it doesn't really work that way, right? If you're living the same life they are a week earlier, two weeks earlier, it's going to make it very difficult to convince them that your view of morality is better than theirs and that they need to listen to you. Does that make sense? And so in this situation, it really failed Lot in trying to get his sons-in-laws and daughters out of the city. And I think there's some lessons for us to learn there. If we're living a dual life on social media, it's going to be very difficult to reach people. 
Because we say, oh man, I love Jesus. And then we say, oh man, I love, and then some ridiculous thing that we shouldn't be watching, right? Or we may be like Lot. You know, I'd never be caught dead doing fill in the blank. But I do watch it on Netflix, right? When we have this dual citizenship where we, we want to be committed to God, but we're also really comfortable with worldly things, it makes it very difficult to pull people out of the world. Here's why I say this. Consistency is one of the most important attributes of leadership. It's one of the most important attributes of ministry because people are watching you. You claim to be someone who follows Jesus, but if you live a life that doesn't look in harmony with the way that people who follow Jesus should be, they're not going to want to listen to you. Does that make sense? Well, you'll never believe this. The things you post on social media are public, right? And people stalk folks on social media all the time. So you knock on somebody's door and say, hey, man, you want Bible studies? Sure. And then they have your phone number and they have your name and they go look on social media. And then you get a phone call and say, hey, I don't think I want Bible studies from you anymore. Because you're doing stuff that I don't, you understand? Like there's this inconsistency can really limit our ability to witness. So Lot is referred to as a righteous man, but that didn't save his family once he presumptuously moved his whole life into Sodom. So what's the solution then, right? I don't want to be this turn or burn guy. That's not really the way I roll. But this is what I would recommend. How many people have heard of a phrase called outpost center? Have never heard of an outpost center? So an outpost center is basically a missionary community outside of the city that provides education, restoration, and preparation for the work that happens in the city. Right? This is the main idea. And they have a center of influence in the city. They got a health food store, right? They got a restaurant. They got something else. And clothing stores or whatever. This is the mentality that I recommend people take who are Seventh-day Adventist mission-minded Christians. Use your social media as a form of like, use the outpost sitter mentality that you don't live there, right? Uh, yeah, I'll leave this here. You don't live in the city. You live outside of the city. There's a place that you can retreat to, that you can regenerate. Your whole life isn't just immersed in devices and foolishness. So you have access, you go into the city, you invest in people, you build relationships, no problem, right? We're not saying that social media is the worst thing that's ever happened. It's actually quite good for the gospel if you use it appropriately. That's the point. How are you using it? And is it using you? That's the question you have to ask. But build the relationships, get to know people, find what it is that makes their gears turn, and then start communicating in ways that would resonate with them, but in Christ-centered, you know, attent you know attractive ways. So you establish a center of influence inside of the city to win their trust and their friendship, all with the goal of making intentional efforts to win their souls. We use this phrase a lot, friendship evangelism. And I think friendship evangelism is incredibly effective and helpful if it's actually friendship evangelism. Some of us think that I'm a Seventh-day Adventist and I'm friends with not-Adventists, and that's friendship evangelism. That's friendship Friendship evangelism is going the next step in finding ways to be intentional. You don't berate them. You don't blast them, right? You don't put tracks in their mailbox every day you walk by their house. You find tactful, reasonable, heart-winning ways to build relationships. Does that make sense? But you're intentionally looking for ways to invest in them spiritually. And the things that you post and say and do directly affect their receptivity to your gospel seed. Does that make sense? This is why Jesus used the parable of the different soils. So God has not called us to live in social media, but he has called us to influence people that are in social media and with social media. You understand the difference? You don't live there. Your whole life isn't dependent upon it, but you do have access. You do use it in a missional way. 
This is from uh, the commentary on this very section of Genesis chapter 19 from, from eternity past, I think. We should choose the society most favorable to our spiritual advancement and avail ourselves of every help within our reach. For Satan will oppose many hindrances to make our progress towards heaven as difficult as possible. Sometimes we have to kind of remind ourselves that there's actually a devil who's trying to ensnare us. We just kind of get, we get used to going through the motions. We kind of forget the fact that we actually live on a battlefield. So we should make decisions with that in mind. And we should choose the society that will be most favorable for our growth. We may be placed in trying positions, for many cannot have their surroundings what they would. But we should not voluntarily expose ourselves to influences that are unfavorable to the formation of Christian character. Choose wisely, that's all, right? This is the beautiful thing. On social media, there's this feature, particularly in Facebook, where you can unfollow people. You're still friends with them. They can still see what you're posting, but you no longer see those pictures, right? You no longer see those statements. You can kind of limit that. You can kind of choose how you're exposing yourself to this stuff. And I like that. Now, when duty calls us to these places, we should be doubly watchful and prayerful that through the grace of Christ, we may stand uncorrupted. So if God is calling you to have this type of missional investment, no problem. But just make your decisions prayerfully and carefully. That's all. Now, some counsel on things to avoid. If I had more time, I would really go to town on this, but I don't. But when we start getting knee-deep in politics, in the church and out of the church, it causes a whole lot of problems, y'all. A whole lot of problems. Some people are so addicted to their own opinion on these matters that they're making everyone in their social media feed miserable because they have no self-control. They hate Trump. They hate Obama. They hate Ted Wilson. They hate Dan Jackson, right, or whoever. Like, they, they just can't stand these people who don't think the way that they think. Well, inside of the faith, these are still brethren, first of all, right? They're still brethren. We're even told to be praying for our leadership in the country and in the church, according to 1 Timothy chapter 2, because God desires all to be saved. So we should be praying for these individuals, right? Regardless of whether we agree with them or not. But this stuff is just so corrosive and poisonous. I drank the red Kool-Aid for a while, and then I drank the blue, and now I just have a stomach ache. I'm done with all of them, right? Choose wisely in how you spend your time, and just don't get caught up in this. It really hurts your witnessing potential. Really hurts your witnessing potential. Because, oh, no, no, I'm not going to listen to them, because they're just a fill-in-the-blank, right? It just causes problems. Now, Speaking on this topic of not being civil in the way that we communicate on social media, this is something that was mentioned by Ellen White in her day about how the brethren were communicating one with another. And I find it fascinating, and I wish I could plaster this on every single person's wall in the Seventh-day Adventist Church. She says, Nothing frightens me more than to see the spirit of variance manifested by our brethren. Notice, not worldlings, not politicians, our people. We are on dangerous ground when we cannot meet together like Christians and courteously examine controverted points. If you're so insecure in your political positions that you can't have a reasonable dialogue with someone who doesn't think like you, you're probably not thinking for yourself, first of all. And two, that isn't the way to communicate. That's not communication, right? It's, it's closing off walls to communication, but it gets gooder. She says, I feel like fleeing from the place lest I receive the mold of those who cannot candidly investigate the doctrines of the Bible. How many people feel like that, right? You just want to pick up your laptop and throw it in the bathtub, right? Throw your phone in the toilet. I can't stand watching this any longer. And it has these waves. It's annual council again, more of this stuff. Oh, it's a general conference session, more of this stuff. Oh, it's November, politicians, more of this stuff. 
This is what she says, though. Those who cannot impartially examine the evidences of a position that differs from theirs are not fit to teach in any department of God's cause. I love that Ella White says this. I wish that more of our brethren read it and did it. But here's the thing that makes it difficult. When you're drinking the Kool-Aid of the conservatives or the liberals politically or within our own denomination, what it does is it pre-programs your mind to communicate and to think in the context of us or them. And we don't really want to take someone else seriously about anything else because they're not one of us. And this really limits dialogue. This really limits us working together to finish the work. Hey, do you remember that Jesus actually prayed that we would be one as he and the Father are one? That's not going to happen whenever we'd rather defend our party lines and our party arguments than to take solely biblical positions and learn how to communicate one with another to finish the work. Does that make sense? We should be civil human beings, right? Some of our forums, right? I won't list the names because this is going on Audioverse and I want to be a good boy. But there are, there are websites in our church from the conservatives and the liberals and some of our publications that I don't really have so much of a beef with the, the articles. Like, I know where people are going to come from. That's fine. Free press. What I have a huge beef with is the comment sections. And the way in which we're communicating with our own brethren is sinful. And we should repent. The way in which we tear into each other, we're cannibals. I don't know if you're aware of this, but health reform actually advocates against flesh food. And I guarantee you that humans are not clean meat. We are not called to be cannibals. We're supposed to be vegetarians. We should not be engaging in this foolishness. We are so ugly and unchristlike in the way that we communicate with each other on social media. And like social media is one thing, but like the way that we do it on like ministry websites... Paul says in Romans 2.24 that the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. And he's speaking to the church. What are Seventh-day Adventists about? Hey, Google, what do Seventh-day Adventists believe? And they go to this website and they go to the comments section. Oh, this is what Seventh-day Adventists are about. Y'all can keep it. I'll keep looking. It's a horrible witness, guys. Keep those comments to yourself. Handwrite a letter and send it to them right? At least they can burn that. Like I just, the other things are still public. Now, the last topic I want to deal with is the topic of bullying. And it somewhat coincides with this. It's a form of theological bullying act is what some of us do to each other. But in the world, it's really gnarly. And I'm going to close with a story that's pretty heavy. But I want you to first hear the story about Ella White. When she was a young child, I think she was around nine or 10. I forget what her age was. Uh, she was bullied by somebody. This girl kept pestering her and eventually throws a rock at her. And when she turns around and hits her in the face, causes her all kinds of health problems and really limited her ability to function from that po- forward as just a normal child. Listen to what she says. And it sounds very much like what many young people are going through today who've been bullied and cyber bullied. Listen to this. As I became able to join and play with my young friends, I was forced to learn the bitter lesson that our personal appearance often makes a difference in the treatment we receive from our companions. Ella White learned this at a young age. She continues, It was the hardest struggle of my young life to yield to my feebleness and decide that I must leave my studies and give up the hope of gaining an education. It radically stinted her educational pursuit. She couldn't do it. She physically couldn't handle it. 
Now, the spirit of inspiration is not limited by your education. Amen? She was a great gift to this church and this movement. But my point is, it really wrecked the rest of her life. I just want to say this because someone in our own church and a founder of our church many years ago dealt with the same type of stuff that people go through. What I'd like to share with you in closing is a story of a young woman who tragically ended her own life, but she had all of these signs that she was struggling and needed help. Her name is Amanda Todd. Amanda Todd, I think, was in seventh grade whenever she was doing web chats with people to kind of build friends, which it can be scary when you're a young person not supervised. So she's doing web chats. She meets someone, and this person encourages her to reveal her upper region to the webcam. And she doesn't know what to do, and she eventually does it. What she didn't know was that this person took a picture while this was happening, or a screenshot or whatever. A year goes by, and this person tracks her down on social media and messages her and says, Hey, if you don't give me a show right now, I'm going to take those pictures and show them to everybody. And then they listed these are your parents' names. These are all your friends' names. This is where you go to school. Really creepy stuff. She doesn't know what to do, but she ignores it. Christmas break comes a little bit longer. A few months go by. Christmas break happens. And at 4 a.m., she's awakened by a knock at the door at the front house. It's the police. The picture has been shared everywhere. Everyone has seen it. Her classmates, other people, and it's just devastating for this girl. And she says, I can never get that photo back. It's out there forever. There are times when young people in moments of thoughtlessness, when we're being pressed by someone to do something, well, you promise you won't tell anybody, case after case after case after case, these things never stay with one person. Never. It goes to their friends. It goes to their friends. It went to like seven different schools around where she lived, not just hers. Ruined her life. People were making fun of her, making her feel stupid. She started with these heavy bouts of depression, anxiety, panic disorders, really messed her up. She eventually changed schools and went to a different place. And about a year later, the guy finds her and does the same thing again. He starts a Facebook profile with that particular picture as the profile pic and starts friending all of her friends. And I guess you can see her and I don't know, I haven't seen it, but the, the way in which it's communicated seems to imply that they would know who it was. And it just continues and continues, and she eventually just is freaking out on the inside. She's dealing with heavy, heavy depression, and she goes to another place. She was talking to an old guy friend of hers, and the guy ends up saying, hey, you know, I like you, and I'd like to hang out. My girlfriend's out of town. Come over. Well, I think you know what happens, and she gives herself away. The guy ends up telling his girlfriend about it, and then she gets this message that says one week later, um, telling her, get out of this school. You need to get out of the school right now. What ends up happening is the girlfriend finds out and 15 other people, they surround her, and she didn't want the guy to get in trouble. She said it was her fault, even though it wasn't. The guy's the one that really pressed her to make this decision. Then someone says, just hit her already. And the girlfriend hits her, throws her on the ground, starts hitting her multiple times. She gets to get, you know, the people get pulled away. They call the cops and her dad picks her up, but she just laid in a ditch. Like she just got up and went in a ditch and just laid down and she doesn't want to live anymore. It's absolutely ruined her life. And she's been bullied by this guy, by other people. Everyone's laughing at her. She doesn't want to live anymore. She literally went home and drank bleach and said, I can't do this anymore. I just don't want to live anymore. Well, they took her to the hospital and were able to save her life. 
And what people ended up saying to her, these same kids from this school, is that she should try a different bleach next time, and this time I hope she isn't so stupid. Now, what I'm showing you are screenshots of a video she made four months before she ended her own life. And she did one of those card videos where there's statements, and then she pulls the card away, there's next statement, and she tells this whole story of what she's going through. Just bearing her heart to the world because she just longs to be loved, she just longs to be accepted, and all she's getting is bullying and horrible treatment from people around her. And... She ends up attempting suicide again. She overdosed. It didn't work. She starts cutting. She's hurting herself because she, she just wants to be in control. She just wants to find some way to get past what she's having to contend with. And it's crippling this poor young girl. And when she gets to the close of the video, she says, I have nobody and I need someone. And the last sign that says, my name is Amanda Todd. She's hurting. She's alone. And no one saw the warning signs. Four months later, she ends her own life. Young people are wrestling tenaciously with heavy heart issues. And I'm going to address some of those in the next seminar, in the next session. But this is no joke. And when you see warning signs like this, you have to take action. There are so many stories on the internet of young people having stories just like this. And the things that people say to each other on the internet is absolutely awful and atrocious and sinful. And this girl is gone. Amanda said, I have nobody, I need someone. What she didn't know is that you're not alone and you do have someone. And his name is Jesus. And I want you to listen to what Jesus' experience was like and how he could relate to this poor young girl. Jesus' experience. In Isaiah chapter 53, we're told that there's nothing about his appearance that would draw us to him. He was viewed as unattractive. He was rejected, according to Isaiah 53 in verse 3. He felt alone in his grief, in Isaiah 53 in verse 5. He was physically wounded, right? When she was getting punched in the face, Jesus has been punched in the face. Isaiah 53 in verse 5. And he was quiet about the abuse, we're told, in Isaiah 53 in verse 7. She felt like she can't talk to anybody what, what's going on. No one understands me. The text says that he was quiet about the abuse. He couldn't talk to anyone. But it continues. He was ridiculed and mocked in Psalm 22, just like she was. You know why? So that she could have a perfectly sympathetic Savior who could listen to her, who could understand her, and heal her of her deepest heart wounds. She didn't know this. And so she ended her life not knowing there was another option. He was stripped naked and cried out to God to help, Psalm 22, 18 to 21. He was not sexually violated, but went through something very similar to be able to resonate with people like her who were hurt and went through hardship. Thank you. He was tempted to harm himself in Matthew chapter 4, right? When she's cutting, when she's drinking bleach, when she's taking pills to overdose, she was trying to harm herself. She was harming herself. Jesus was tempted to do so, but overcame. But he can relate to that temptation. He had to go through this for her sake. He was betrayed by someone that he trusted, Matthew 26, 48 to 49, Judas. She was betrayed by someone that she thought she could trust, this, this guy and other people, that guy in the webcam too. He was tempted to numb his pain by drinking wine. The whole point of the wine vinegar mix was to make your pain at least somewhat more bearable. And Jesus refused it, but he was tempted to take it. She went to alcohol and to drugs to numb her pain, she said. After the first situation, 
just to try to cope and get by. Jesus was tempted with something very similar to relate to this precious young girl. And he was publicly exposed and shamed, just like she was. Stripped naked, hoisted up on the cross for everyone in town to see. He didn't want that, didn't ask for that, but he went through something so that he could relate with Amanda. He knows what it's like to be shamed and exposed publicly. If you've been bullied or abused, know that Christ went through this to be able to comfort you in ways that nobody else can. Jesus had to go through these things to resonate with you. In Hebrews chapter 2, verses 17 and 18, he tells us this. Hebrews chapter 2. Verses 17 and 18. Therefore, in all things, he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For in in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. Amanda didn't know what was available to her, but you can. And you can be that means of offering help to people that you see struggling on social media. When you see these warning signs crying out to help, no one cares about me, I don't want to live anymore, you can do something about this. You can tell them about a Savior that can relate. You can plug them into Jesus. Hebrews chapter 4 says something very similar. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 to 16. Seeing then that we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. This is not a time to be letting go of Jesus. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. And look at what Paul tells us to do next. Knowing this, let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. I assure you, Jesus has what you need in those moments. There's a place where Ellen White was counseling someone who was just sure that they couldn't be saved. And she says, Jesus says, anyone who comes unto me, I will in no wise cast out. And she goes on to say, if you claim this promise, you are as safe as though inside of the city of God. She says, that's all you have to offer Jesus, but this one promise, cling to that and you are safe. If your life has been filled with failure, if you've been hurting other people, if you've been bullying people, theologically or otherwise through social media, you can repent, you can come to Jesus, and you can find freedom. If you've been abused, you can find comfort and healing. Amen? The cross of Christ was meant to achieve this. If you see people who are being bullied, do something about it. This is not okay. Someone needs to shut down these comment sections on Adventist websites. Stop it. Like people are being bullied theologically and being made to feel like idiots for having different views. Whether they're biblical or not, you don't have to communicate like heathens. We should not be communicating that way. And if you see stuff like this happening, do something about it. We're more willing to share our disgust over political and religious things. But when we see things like this, many times we sit on our hands, seeing people get hurt around us. That's not okay. It's not. We have to take action. So is social media sin? My answer is it depends. What are you using it for? Are you using it? Is it using you? Are you using it to bring people to look to you, to follow you, to be all about you? Are you finding ways to bring relationships into other people's lives, to show them the light of Jesus? Now, am I saying that if you don't post Ellen White quotes and Bible quotes every day that you you shouldn't use social media? No, show people that the Adventist life is attractive, desirable, and reasonable, right? 
It's okay to post regular things about your life, but don't make all this about you. Don't have 10,000 selfies and all that other stuff. Just be, be balanced in how you do it. But here's my point. This is a phenomenal opportunity we have before us to reach billions of people. Just keep throwing stuff against the wall until it sticks. And we're going to cover that in the next session. But there's a humongous opportunity before us. I fully believe the Apostle Paul, his mouth would be watering if he saw that this many people were available. This is the modern school of Tyrannus. I'm fully convinced of this. This is where people are going to kill time and hear new ideas. Well, let's give them some good ones. Right? Cat videos are humorous and great, but let's give them some thought-provoking dialogue. Right? I may have some saved on my Facebook page, but you'll never know because that's on my profile, not yours, right? But the point is, find ways to engage in thoughtful discussion. Look at what people are posting that are not Adventists in your sphere of influence. What is it that makes them tick? How can I find ways to connect those dots? How can I build a friendship with that person? We'll get into that in the next session. But I just wanted to close with this first, that I don't want to sound like a legalist. I don't want to make it sound like everything about social media is bad. There's bad stuff there. You know what? There's bad stuff if you go in the mission field too. The question is, how are you going to manage yourself? How are you going to manage your time? What are you going to do with it? And she says, if God has called you to these places, we should be doubly watchful and prayerful. Just be reasonable, right? Be thoughtful. Don't assume that I can just do whatever I want and have no consequences. We saw in the life of Lot, that's not true. When you're trying to live a righteous life, but you're comfortable around foolishness, it murders your witnessing potential. And to his sons-in-law, he seemed to be joking. That doesn't have to be your story. You can actually get people out of the city if you start sowing those good seeds now. Amen? You can use this as a means of calling people out of Babylon. It's actually one of our important messages, isn't it? Let's close with a word of prayer. God in heaven, I just want to thank you for this opportunity to just reflect on basic principles of social media, addiction, brokenness, bullying. There's many more things that could be said, but I just pray that you would allow this to make sense that wherever I've failed communicating, the Lord, that you would speak to the people's hearts and they would remember what you want them to remember. But above all else, may we see this as a wonderful opportunity with risks, yes, but all life has that. How do we manage it? How do we surrender it to you and use it for your glory? This is our plea today, Lord, and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.